Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the Matter of the Heart, where we bring you heartfelt, educational, and positive stories, all to elevate your spirit. I am your host, Carol Olivia, and uh, always we thank you so much for listening to the Matter of the Heart. The topic for today's show, how thoughts become things. If you ever think of that, how do your thoughts transform or change What's that action? What's the process of that? Well, the, uh, the guest of the show is Doug. Doug Vermeeren is uh, considered one of the top leaders in personal development and achievement psychology. An Enterprise Magazine, I'm presuming that's in Canada, uh, Doug. Enterprise Magazine calls him Canada's Tony Robbins and is the regular featured expert on Fox, Fox Business CNN, ABC, NBC, and so many others. He's also a film producer of many films, right, Doug? And your latest film uh, is film uh, is thoughts. Thoughts become things. Thoughts become things. So we're going to delve into Doug's thoughts. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. When you say, I'm um, curious, you know, uh, how thoughts become things, I'm sure some of the listeners are thinking, what's things? Think, I, when I think of a thing, I think of something tangible. Something, what do you mean by the concept before we? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Um, you know, as we uh, look at the film, we see that really generally people have a few things that they're looking to create. So obviously there's tangible things, everything from, in fact, you know, let's say the new car, the new house, the money in the bank account, clothing, travel, whatever you want. But I think it really, that's, that's kind of a narrow view of it. I believe that things also have a lot to do with who we become as individuals. And the truth of the matter is, is you'll see when you watch the film that we don't really believe that thoughts actually do become things. We believe that things already exist. Like say, for example, you want the new Ferrari. It actually exists. Your thoughts don't bring it about, but your thoughts definitely bring you in harmony with the activities and the things that you'll need to do to bring something like that into your life. And so to be quite frank, I think the most important word in the whole title, how thoughts become things, it's actually the word become the changes that we have to make, who we have to become in order to start attracting the things that we really want most in our life. Okay, so as far as becoming, and I, and I understand what you're saying, but that word is very powerful to me. It's an awareness. Mm. It's a change. It's an awareness, it's recognition, self-confidence, self-empowerment. So yeah. how do you, what insight do you have simply with the word become? Well, for, first of all, it begins with awareness. Awareness is the beginning of everything. And I think the important thing for us to remember is that wherever we are, whatever we're you know, where we're born into the situation of the awareness, there's already programming that also exists before we even arrive. In fact, our parents were programmed by their parents and so on back to the beginning of time. And so we, when, we, when we land in the middle of, let's call it that soup, um, really we, we have to have an awareness if we would like to create something different, right? There's that old saying that if, uh, if you always do what you've always done, you've always get what you've always gotten. And we need to remember that. So when we have a thought, let's just say a brilliant thought, a good thought, something powerful that we want to enrich and develop, we've got to remember, first of all, that thoughts always arrive in pairs. 
So when we have something inspiring that arrives that we want to do, right behind it is a thought that says either you're not good enough or here's some fear, here's some question marks and so forth. And when those two thoughts land together in that, that programming that we've created, generally one will arrive higher than the other. Um, and and, and that, that has a lot to do with, you know, why we keep hearing this idea that you become like the five people you spend the most time with. Not spent, not the past, but spent in the current. Because if you get two really interesting thoughts, a good one and a negative one, and they land among you know, this programming and you're surrounded by people who believe in you, well, then the positive thought will have more power and you'll have you know, been given those beliefs and you'll be, you're gonna be given the support and everything else. But if those thoughts together land in the programming that's negative, well, this one will have more power and you're most likely to begin to doubt yourself and wonder if it's possible and, and begin to have fears. So I think that that awareness that's the beginning, but naturally there are, there are things that we can do as we get into the awareness situation, once we see what's really going on, we can start to make a choice. And that's the second power as how thoughts become things is to really start to selectively choose what we will believe, what we'll adopt as our own destiny, if you will. How does the subconscious mind play into it? Well, the subconscious mind, of course, uh, is really very similar to our programming. I love what Dennis Waitley talked about in our film. And you remember Dennis, who wrote The Psychology of Winning and is probably one of the top leaders on the psychology behind yeah. this. Uh, yeah, I have a background in it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so the, the thing that he kind of shares, which I think is really interesting, is that um, our subconscious is a robot. It is not an analytical individual that, you know, measures and, and, and checks things. In fact, the brain is also always on a path to shortcutting things. So it, the brain will immediately assign something of value without considering it. And because our subconscious is like that robot, however we've been programmed in the past, is exactly the direction that our mind is going to take. It will immediately label it with values, beliefs, and interpretations, stories, and everything else without most often us giving a chance. It's only when we pause... And I love that you brought up awareness earlier. It's when we pause and seek to have that awareness that we really can kind of see how some of our, our thoughts coming from our subconscious are even faulty. And the one thing about, like, if we look at the difference between, it, it, maybe it's a, it's a continuum with subconscious at one end and the conscious at another, most people think it's a fine line that just divides the two. And it really isn't. It's like a dimmer switch in a light, like on a light, right? It's not on or off. It's certain things kind of evolve from being unaware to our awareness, right? And the more that we take a look at things, things shift from our subconscious to our conscious awareness. And so it's really, really important that I think we just start looking carefully at, at the thoughts that we're producing. So what I'm picking up, Doug, and, and certainly give me your insight over there in, mm -hmm. in Canada, is um, it's very important to be as pure as possible, uh, meaning to uh, delete negativity, because if we're going to change or become, it's, it's going back to our seed, our, our, our mission of life. Well, yes and no. I guess this is, this is a bit of a challenge that a lot of people um, struggle with. And we hear this a lot is that they think in order to manifest positive outcomes or the things that we really desire, that we have to have pristine, perfect thinking, that we must be perfectionists and we must always be positive. The truth of the matter is, is that it's not necessary. And in fact, there's often uh, power that comes from us uh, thinking skeptically, thinking sometimes with fear. We, we're protected that way. 
and it, it's actually healthy. And I think it's actually very unhealthy to be uh, seeking perfection. In fact, in your, in your uh, introduction, you mentioned that I went out and I interviewed 400 of the world's top achievers. No one's done that since the days of Napoleon Hill. And so I've had a very careful look, probably more qualified than anyone on the planet at this point to say, these are the success markers that 400 of the world's top achievers do. And if I can say one thing, it's that they're not perfectionists, they're improvisers. And they're also not people who run from problems, they're problem uh, solvers. They confront problems and they understand how to get through them. So there's, rather than saying that it's required for us to think positive all the time, I'm gonna suggest maybe more than that, it's required for us to think persistently. So when we have decided what we want, there will be negative moments. There will be times when things don't work out. There will be things either in our control or out of our control that appear. And once we have clarity around what we want, we can start making choices and we can often proactively head off some of those problems in advance before they appear. But sometimes we don't have that option and we have to respond in such a way that keeps us on target, that keeps us moving towards what we really want most, right? Well, that's interesting because it's also, I'm thinking the word balance. In other words, nothing is perfect as far as perfection goes. We always need yeah, that. The, the motivation of the fear, right? To go to that next step. Yeah, and, and I think you're right. Fear can be a motivator. But I think the thing that's interesting about fear, um, obviously there are some things that are well justified to be afraid of. And um, oftentimes we can call those facts. For example, if you hop into the swimming pool or whatever and there's a great white shark there, probably a good idea to be afraid. Maybe better to not take that action. But there are some things that, in fact, are not justified fears and our imagination actually expands and grows a fear where there was nothing that was there. Now, what's the best way to get rid of a fear like that? Well, it's obviously to have a comprehension of what the reality is. You know, it, it's really interesting, actually. I'm so glad that you brought up fear. Uh, since the movie came out, we're getting all kinds of emails and letters from people who've enjoyed the film and have had really good experiences. And one of the letters that I got is just really my favorite so far. And I thought this was neat. It was a young man who wrote me. He was 11 years old. He, in his email, he said he's 11 years old. And he said that his favorite part of the movie was how we confronted the idea around fear and shared that it's not, not only natural, but here's some strategies on how to evaluate what fears are legitimate, which fears should be respected, so to speak, and which ones should be questioned. And he said, as an 11-year-old boy, he said, you know what, there's a lot of things I'm afraid of. At school, there are bullies that have given me a hard time in the past. He said, there's schoolwork that I'm doing that I'm fearful, I don't even understand it, or my future. I don't know what that's going to be. And then he mentioned this, which I thought was very insightful. He said, and also with what's going on with the COVID virus, he said, so far, the conversation has mostly been to adults, right? There's been nobody really addressing the fears that children or young people are having. And he said, as I observe the behavior of the adults, I'm getting even more afraid because I see a life that, you know, or a world that even these adults aren't prepared to necessarily cope with. And so there was a lot of questions for him. And so for me, I think that was really useful. I felt very um, excited and proud that we were able to do something to help him because no one's really addressing those concerns for young people. And it's, it's kind of too bad, right? But I mean, this is something we've never encountered before. Yeah. We're all yeah. learning together, right? We're all learning together. Yes. So they're looking at it. I'm picking up as a different, not just one person, but I would think they're looking at it from a different perspective. Uh, maybe even more intuitive in a way. It's quite possible. Yeah, but, but I think the thing that was interesting for him that he pointed out is that 
it, it became even more fearful when those that he was expecting to be his protectors and his support and the authorities that he recognizes, like his family and his parents and his and other siblings and stuff. And all of those that were older than him were coming from a place of fear. And so he just really didn't know how to process that. And then as he watched the film, he gained some insights into it enough so that he now felt comfortable and confident facing these fears. Absolutely. And uh, to me, that was a cool blessing to see that for him. Absolutely. I'm really grateful. So what give us, if you don't mind, some other insights into the film, some wisdom uh, oh, sure. that we can learn from Doug. Well, there were so many things that we wanted to share in the film, and I hope we did it justice. I think for me, and, and kind of looking at my own life experience and something I really hope everyone gets from the film, a lot of people think shifting your thoughts and going to a new plane of thought is really difficult. And my suggestion is that it's not, but it's kind of... Uh, a cycle, if you will. So our thoughts, yes, form from the inside, but our thoughts are also affected by what's around us in the outside. In other words, our influences around us, the TV that we watch, the social mm -hmm. media that we participate, et cetera, et cetera. That influences our thoughts, but most important, also the people we hang out with. Now I've already mentioned, we become like the five people we spend the most time with, but here's an interesting perspective. When I was a young man, um, like I was born into a family that you know, we didn't really understand personal development. My parents had no exposure to it. My father worked in construction. My mom babysat kids in the home. We were not wealthy. And so their idea of success was let's work more hours, right? <laughs> you want more money, work more hours. And we were kind of on the rat race. And, and the whole idea was if you want more money, you put in overtime. And so when I was 19, I started interviewing the world's top achievers. And what I really found very quickly is when I leveled up the kind of people I was getting my um, information from uh, the kind of thinking, the opportunities. In other words, you raise your standards and your standards are risen, right? Like th that's just it. And so I think, you know, a big lesson for this, if you want your thoughts to become better things, immediately start injecting better people into your life of who you're spending time with. Now, I do want to just say one caveat with this though. I know that uh, like when I went out and I interviewed the 400 of the world's top achievers, I found that there were some things that a lot of the gurus today are teaching that are not correct. There's a lot of the things, a lot of the life coaches, business coaches, speakers, they're sharing, they're, it's not correct. They've never really achieved success. They're generally teaching what they read in someone else's book, which isn't right. So one of the things that I found that was well, a big error. Uh, I, I just want to ask you, just yes. relating to what you're saying, what do you mean by success? Well, again, and, and, and we could have that as a full conversation, right? We could definitely do that. Like, I love what Stephen Covey said, said most people climb the ladder of success only to find it's leaning against the wrong wall. So you need to really understand what that means. But, but let me make this point just kind of to finish that, because we're talking about influences. We're talking about people, right? So one of the things that a lot of the gurus are saying right now today is that you need to eliminate toxic people from your life. And while it's true, you need to eliminate abusers, the, the problem is here is that most people label anyone who disagrees with them or that they, you know, that they don't want to hear as toxic, right? This person's negative. They're toxic. And that's not true. In fact, there's a lot of times when our ego doesn't want to be taught or we don't want to listen to something. And so we call it toxic, but it's not toxic. And so if we look at the top achievers again, their idea wasn't to run from a problem. In fact, they're problem solvers. So when, when, when they encounter someone who is, uh, somewhat toxic, they find a way to manage them. And really there's only two kinds of toxic people anyways. That's a complainer. So that's somebody who doesn't have a solution. They're just a whiner. They've got things to say that are negative, blah, blah, blah. But the truth is, is as soon as you develop enough power within yourself, 
that you can recognize a complainer and you don't endorse it. So you say, you know, I can draw boundaries. I don't have to like, subscribe, embrace, endorse, or anything like that. I'm my own person. You've gained power. But if you just simply cut them off, you aren't expanding. You don't have power, right? You've removed yourself from the ability of, for growth. The other kind of toxic person is what we call a critic. Now, this right. is where we need to be careful because with a critic, most of the time they come with a fact or a set of facts. They also often have solutions, but they're not very good communicators. And so when they share that with you, your ego feels hurt. So you tell these people, you're toxic, get away from me. But what they're saying, you might want to listen to. This is an example. When I was a teenager, I had people who said, oh, you might want to be careful about hanging out with those people. Or you might want to be careful if you're going out, you know, too late on a Friday night. Well, I didn't like to hear that. But that doesn't mean they were toxic. In fact, most of the time, those people who were saying things to me like that loved and cared about me. They just weren't really good at articulating it in a way that a teenage mind was willing to accept it, right? So one of the biggest things that we look at when it comes to how thoughts become things is not only do you need to level up your network, but you need to expand your ability to be teachable, right? So that even if someone comes and says something that you don't like, you're willing to entertain that there may be some truth in that. And the more teachable that we are, the more we can expand who we are. Here's a little saying that we teach in my personal power mastery training. It's if you want to expand what you have, you must expand who you are. And that's the problem with most people is they're not willing to do that. The universe, ever since the big has been an expansion, everything is expanding. Trees grow, grass grows, everything grows. Yet we as people, we look for a way to hang on to where we are and not change and not expand. And anytime we're contracting, we're actually fighting against the entire universe. You know, I, I definitely agree that we learn from Mother Nature. Mother Nature has wisdom as far as growth goes, you know. Um, but when you're talking about criticism, what about anger? People who have anger and criticize you. Yeah, well, again, there may even be truth in some of the things they're saying as well. But let's talk, talk about where anger comes from. Where does anger come from? All negative human emotion comes from unmet expectations. So part of the question you need to ask is what have you given as an expectation that you haven't met that that person's angry about. And I'm not even saying it's your fault, but they have an expectation that hasn't been realized and that's why they're angry. So many times if we look very carefully in, in a heated situation where there's confrontation and we ask, well, what's the expectation that there was that wasn't managed? As soon as we can identify that, we can start to talk through it, right? But it's very important in all these heated emotional moments, whether it's someone who's angered or hurt or disappointed or feels jealous or betrayed or whatever it is, those are all, first of all, manifestations of scarcity, but they're all going to be based on some form of expectation that hasn't been met. Okay. That's interesting. I never thought of that. Well, I'll think about that some more for sure. Uh, what other wisdom would you like to share? Uh, wow. Um, well, obviously, I'm going to invite you to watch the film for your audience to watch the film. Right. There's so much in this film. It's hard to you just kind of even pick out one. But I guess one of the things that I really also liked that I thought was interesting, talking about influence, if we're still talking about that, I love what Marie yeah. Diamond said in the film. She said that everything that we surround ourselves with it's like a three-dimensional vision board. I never thought about that before. Everything around us is a three-dimensional vision board. So the room that we, for example, do our work in, right? How do we create and lay out that room so that it helps us to either feel empowered or disempowered? Think about yeah. this even, let's even take this to clothing for a minute, right? Like, I, I, I don't know sort of, you know, what your experience has been, but I know that I have got certain outfits that when I put them on, I feel better about myself, yeah. right? 
And if there's a, a important meeting, I'll actually pick a specific outfit to wear because of how it makes me feel, right? Like I can literally show up better with more power, right? And so it's not just our outfits that are susceptible like that. It's everything in our environment. And when we surround ourselves with things that don't make us feel good or make us feel less or limited or, or uh, held back, that's the appearance or, or rather that's what's going to appear. That's going to be our outcomes. So for me, I thought that was a really interesting insight in the film that it shares and talks about that. Uh, and obviously one of the other things that I think is interesting is thoughts uh, or the energy around thoughts, the creative energy around thoughts, isn't just the thoughts we have, but it's also the thoughts that others have. So if you think about this word again, uh, talking again about influence, right? We've heard this idea that our network becomes our net worth, right? You've heard that before, but everybody thinks net worth means money. And it's not only money. In fact, if you even take that word net worth, and let's just take the word worth for a minute, worth has a lot to do with what we value. So you could almost say that your net work equals your values, right? That's the net worth of that group. That's their values, the things they find important. I love what John Martini from The Secret and in our film, How Thoughts Become Things, uh, what he told me once. He said, everyone is wealthy. It just appears in the form that they value most. Right. And so if there's something that you see an abundance of in your life and it's really flowing and so forth, well, that's an indication of something that you value. Yeah. And I think it's important that if, if we want to change our values to any degree or if we're not feeling good about the things that we're embracing, maybe we also got to look at the groups that we're hanging around with, right? Because it could very well be that we've decided to sort of become subservient to a group whose values differ from ours. And then we can't feel congruent in a group like that, right? Right. We're not in balance with ourselves, with our mind and our heart and our spirit. Correct. I mean, I think and, and very- I think that's a very common thing today. In fact, I think a lot of people get their sense of value based on how many likes they get on Facebook or how many subscribes they get or, you know, whatever the media is telling you is the flavor of the day. Uh, we embrace a lot of those things and we lie to ourselves and tell us that I'm being authentic when I subscribe to what everyone else says is what I ought to do. Ah. Right. 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 Yes. Yes. Sometimes people need that's very interesting um, Mm. to know that there's a tribe around them and then it might give them a false security. Fair enough. Absolutely. That's true. Yeah, absolutely. So it's really what you're saying, what I'm picking up with many things, but certainly the authenticity of who we are. Yes, that's very important. Right. Now, you mentioned something which I find interesting um, with many people, that when you were were young, you had, it seems as if you had a struggling life, um, in Uh, a way. I I I, think so, but the truth is, is at the time, I don't know that I knew any different, right? Okay. (laughs) Because we, we didn't really know that it was a struggle, but the truth is, is like, our family was very financially tight, and, um, you know, in fact, uh, I don't mind admitting, I, I even wore like hand-me-downs up until high school. Like I was wearing hand-me-downs and, and uh, our family had our groceries rationed, uh, meaning that we didn't have a lot of money coming in. So my parents really were very careful about, you know, how, how they did groceries on the table and you yeah. know, any kind of these activities. I wasn't the kid that, for example, had the newest toys or anything. I never had any of that stuff, right? We were pretty much broke. Like I said, my father worked in construction. And at the time that he was working, uh, there was a recession for buildings. So he was, you know, struggling there. And my mother had to babysit kids in the home just to make ends meet. And then, of course, my dad would take any other kind of additional part-time work wherever he could find it. In fact, I remember as a boy 
this was really kind of fun, a fond memory, like not a bad memory. This was a fond memory. But I remember on a Saturday, uh, my, my mom was doing one job and my dad was doing another and my dad had to take us with him. And we, um, you know, were spreading soil on some lady's lawn wow. uh, as a little boy. My, my brother and I uh, were 11 months apart, but I must have been maybe five or six at the time. And he was 11 months younger than me. And we went to work with my dad on a Saturday like that. I remember that. And, th- and that wasn't an uncommon thing. We, we would go from time to time, either with my mom or my dad while they were working. In fact, I remember also cleaning a dental office with my parents one time to make some extra money. So, yeah. <laughs> so I see. I find these things interesting because I've noticed that a lot of time, and I don't mean the word struggle in any negativity at oh, all. Sure. I think in a very positive way, that person uh, mm-hmm. can appreciate life more, dig much more into their heart and to their own framework of who they are. So that had to contribute to who you are. Everything contributes. But I'm sure that was a big influence as far as who you are today. Well, I, I think also, and, and again, I'm, I'm not, again, wanting to use the word struggle, but maybe perspective or paradigm, right? Right. And I think because um, I was able to see that side of things, uh, I can empathize with my students when they arrive. Many of them come in and, you know, now I'm doing about eight figures a year in passive income, right? So I'm also rated the number one passive income coach in the world right now. But the fact that I, I saw the other side of things, when someone arrives, I really understand what that background's like. And I also don't take for granted where I am now. Right. Whereas I have other friends that, you know, in fact, I've got one friend I'm thinking of. He inherited an incredible fortune uh, from his parents. Uh, They're both still alive, but they also they just immediately gifted him and everything was gifted. Right. And quite frankly, I I don't really see at times that he appreciates it the same way because it was given without the effort. Right. And, and, And that's fine. I mean, that's that's been his journey. And I'm sure he's got other challenges and struggles. We all have our challenges and struggles. But uh, I'm grateful for the background that I had because it made me appreciate things in a different way that I probably otherwise wouldn't have had I not had the experience. And like I said, it really makes me empathetic to those that come to our trainings and our courses because I can get where they're at. When I have somebody, I I haven't had this, for example, for me, right? But I I had a, a single mom come to one of our events in Las Vegas who really was experiencing some significant challenges and family problems and money problems and everything problems. And uh, now again, I didn't have that background. I've never been a single mom, right? <laughs> you can tell I'm not a single mom, but because of where I've been, I, I, I kind of had an insight to where, you know, she was coming from and what she was feeling and my heart just broke for her. Right. But I knew it from experience, what it was like to be broke. Right. Know, to that degree. Great. You have the empathy and the compassion. Yeah. Right. You know, um, that's why I think actually people who do struggle, they, again, there's a different, you can feel it versus somebody who's been given, you know, given. So I'm mm. not saying this happens all the time, but uh, there's a reason for this. Listen, for every season, there's a reason. So, Fair enough. Right. So there was, I'm sure, monumental reasons for that for you. Yeah. Um, so in this society, um, how thoughts become things, Doug, um, how would, should people just approach it? Because there is, we were mentioning fear and then anxiety. Mm. And what, how can we um, be aware of any blockages so we totally become, go forward? 
Well, I think the first step to being aware of blockages, but also know what you want and, and right. start activating this process. Um, here's the deal is most people are on autopilot, so they don't really think about either what's going on around them or what they really want, or they also don't believe that it's possible for them. And so I'm going to suggest the first thing that you really need to do is try and find some clarity around that. And uh, I'm a firm believer, this is the way we say it in our seminars, a goal that is specific and clear becomes attainable and near. So that clarity at, at the outside is very, very important. And sometimes people say, well, I really don't know what I want. I don't know, right? Well, maybe then start also with what you don't want, right? What would be terrible? What would be the worst stuff that could happen for you? And as soon as you start seeing that, well, then you kind of have an idea of what you really do want. And I, I think it's, um, you know, how do we say this? I, I don't want you to, again, become inauthentic and choose what other people are necessarily choosing as a reality. But sometimes it does help to say, who do I admire in life? Who do I really respect and why? What is it that they've done or that they have or have accomplished that values. makes me feel that, yeah, because you'll see where their values align. And for me, just looking back at my life, um, you know, obviously being raised broke, I knew what poverty could sort of create or not create, right? Like the limitations that were there. And so that became something I decided I didn't want, right? But I have to admit, I didn't just want it for the money. Okay, because this is interesting. Nobody wants, and I always say it this way, nobody wants a suitcase full of paper with dead people on it, which is typically what money is, right? What we want are the experiences that it can give to us. So what I really wanted in the end were the experiences that I had seen some people that I admired. What did they do? In fact, um, a lot of the wealthy people that I knew, I really honored the fact that they gave back, not only to the community, but even in faraway countries, in fact, I've got a friend that he, um, he builds schools in Kenya, right? I've got another friend that they actually supply wheelchairs to a variety of individuals around the world. And they do it anonymously, which is amazing. One of the success interviews that I interviewed was Frank Shankowitz, who's the founder of the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Frank's a close friend now. I get a chance to chat with him quite regularly. And I see the things that they were able to do through their foundation. So it's not really the money that always attracts us. I mean, in, for many of us, we look at the money and we get excited. But really, the, the legacy of it, the value of it, what does it really provide, right? Like, how are you able to you know, bless your life and the lives of those that you care about and, and even beyond that, right? I think once we start looking at the bigger picture of what it provides, um, how do we say, once you have your why power, you get your willpower. It's a why power before willpower. The energy, Doug. I mean, the energy mm. of money by itself, you know, uh, yeah. to different people who have different principles or priorities. But I think it's beautiful when somebody does and then they give back. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and the truth is, is you've heard this before. I, you know, it's been mentioned so often that money really is a magnifying glass, right? If, if, if you're a great person before, you're going to become even greater. If you're a jerk before, shame on you and you'll be a bigger jerk, right? Um, I also kind of like uh, Bo Derek said it once this way. She said money, some people think money isn't happiness, but it all depends on where you shop. And I don't say that to be sarcastically. It's true. We can buy different things. And in our circumstances with our family, you know, obviously we, we do take care of our needs and we take care of our extended family where needed and some of them don't need it and that's fine. But we also have different causes that we support. Like one of the causes that we really support is uh, in my city anyways, it's the Alberta Children's Hospital Foundation. And why? Because two of my sons spent a lot of time in the children's hospital with all kinds of 
you know, you name it, right? Everything from umbilical hernias to cystic hygroma and all these the closed fontanel that didn't close. Like my, my two sons were a mess. But I did have a, a brother, or I've got a brother who they lost a baby to leukemia at 18 months. And the nurses were just amazing to us. It was really a blessing. They came to the funeral. They supported us all through the time. And so that's a cause that is close to our heart and we'll continue to support them, right? So, you know, I guess now's a good time to just simply say, by the way, for any of your listeners that are sometimes maybe feeling like maybe you're challenged with your self-worth or you're struggling with feelings about yourself and everything, you want to know the quickest way to feel good about yourself is to do something for someone else that they cannot repay, right? right? And it doesn't have to involve money. Right. right. You just go out and do something for someone else, whether it's even listen to them or help them or, you know, uh, go mow someone's lawn or shovel their walk or bring a shut in some groceries or whatever it is that you got to do. But if they can't repay it, it'll make you feel great. And here's even better. If you can do it anonymously, it's supercharged. So, yeah, that's what I'm going to suggest. Wherever you are, go do something nice for someone. And and anonymously, that's and anonymously. That's why I oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. Anonymously, well, you're giving out, and then it's it's balance again. You're giving out, and you're coming back. Well, let, let me also put it this way: just with everything, and you can define this however you want. But right. the universe is an echo chamber, right? Right. How you show up determines what shows up for you. And so, if you show up with fear, hesitation, doubt, uh, jealousy, comparison, hatred, criticism. Those are the things that will come back to you. But if you show up with boldness, confidence, enthusiasm, support, help, anonymous giving, all kinds of these things, you're going to find the universe will give you that back. The universe always finds a way to balance itself, but it always gives you back exactly what you put out. It may not happen instantly. Most of the time it does, though. But it will happen regardless of how soon thereafter. Sure. Well, there's no time in the universe. Uh, It's not man-made time. You know, no natural time. Fair enough. Right. Uh, um, well, what wi- uh, other insights in closing would you like to tell the audience um, about the humanistic aspects of uh, our thoughts become things? Well, I think one of the most interesting things that I learned, and, and this, we do touch on this in the movie, but I personally learned it when I was doing the interviews with the 400 of the world's top achievers. And that's just a simple phrase as this. If you own it, you can change it. And I think this is the really big thing that um, many, many of us suffer from is sometimes we look for an external circumstance to blame our situation on. We say, I can't do this because I came from that family, or I can't do this because my job is this way, or I can't do this because my spouse is this way, or my kids are that way. And we, we often give away our responsibility quickly. And there, you know, with this idea, if we own it, we can change it. As soon as we own it, we begin to retake our power. And I might also mention something interesting about excuses. Have you ever noticed that if something is within our power, generally make an excuse. If it's beyond our power and there's nothing we can do about it, we generally don't make an excuse because we can't do anything about it. So just listen carefully the next time then there's something you're invited to do and I'm going to ask you to be more clear. Either no, I don't want to do it, or yes, I do. Don't make an excuse, right? Gain the habit of being excuse-free because excuses never created anything. And also remember that the return on doing nothing is always nothing. Oh, I love that. Well, that's beautiful. And also excuse hides the, uh, the truth. 
Well, and, and here's the other thing too, is remember I said earlier that our brain is always looking for a split second decision, Yeah. right? So most of the time our default mode is an excuse. If we don't want to do something, we never wonder, I wonder what I'd like to do this. Right. Does this fit with what I want to do? Is this who I am? What would the result be? You know, would this help this person or would this help me? Or what's the future benefit? We don't ever think about that. We just simply say, oh, no, 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 no. I, I don't have the time yeah. or I don't have the money. I don't have the insight or the opportunity or the connections. Or We just immediately jump to what it is we don't have. We seek for a position of lack. And in the end, that's what we create. Here's something interesting to think about just even in terms of the power of decision. Most people make decisions based on where they are, not where they want to be. A decision is based on the future. So if someone brings you an opportunity, generally your first thing is, I don't have enough time, I don't have money, I don't have resources, I don't know enough people, I don't know enough personally, blah, 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 blah. Well, if you want to fix that, the only thing that will is a new decision. So if you want more money or more time or more opportunity, whatever, you need a new decision because everything that you've decided to do up until now never has gotten you that. That's why you're always in lack. And so the idea is, is you need to almost take a leap of faith to expand yourself. The minute you say, yes, I will do that, all of a sudden there's a new equation that's being played out, right? That's sure. And your and, spirit, your spirit, yeah. though, right? Yeah. I guess I can do it and your spirit rises. That's right. And you know what's interesting is the human mind, it, it, it sorts information in a way. Uh, when we're approached with an opportunity, its first activity is to protect us. So that's why we say no. But as soon as we shift from no to yes, it shifts from protecting us to solving the problem. So it then begins to look at what needs to be done to create a yes. And funny enough, you've heard this before, that when we make a decision or have a belief, our brain starts to look for evidence to support that. So if it's something that we really do want in the future, if we can see a possibility, the minute we say yes, all of a sudden our brain shifts into a gear to see evidence that will give us the yes. Yeah, and most people, like I said, they, they stop at an excuse and so therefore they're destined to repeat the challenges that they, they've constantly done for their entire life. It's also good for the immune system. You got it. Psychosomatics. Right. We you talk know, about that in the film everything too. Everything's connected. Well, we're going to say yes to watch your film. Uh, your film is out, Doug? It is. It came out on the 24th of uh, April. So it's been out for a little while now. Okay, great. And the name of it is? Yeah. How Thoughts Become Things. Well, that's great, Doug. Thank you so <laughs> Thank you Hallelujah. for having me. <laughs> Hallelujah. That's great. That's great, Doug. <laughs> Thanks, Doug, so much for being on the matter of the heart. Thank you, Doug. Thank you. And you've been listening to the matter of the heart with Doug Vermeeren, and I am your host. Carol Olivia. Thanks for listening, everybody.